Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. This week, we're talking about big data and the way algorithms increasingly shape our experiences. Big data systems are everywhere now, sometimes making judgments and decisions for us, or about us. Though these systems can feel invisible, every now and then we notice them. Uh, your credit card might get declined when you're on vacation because the system thinks you're sort of doing something that's out of the ordinary. You might buy a quirky gift for your cousin and then have the ads for that product pop up everywhere you go online for a while. And in education, schools and colleges are, are starting to use big data to nudge students to stay on track. As we create this data layer around us, there's more and more chance for systems to misfire or to be set up in a way that consistently disadvantages one group over another. And that potential for systemic unfairness is the concern of our guest today, Virginia Eubanks. She's an associate professor of political science at SUNY Albany and a longtime advocate for underprivileged communities, as well as an expert on tech. She's author of the recent book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor, which the New York Times called riveting, I connected with Eubanks recently to, to talk to her about her explorations on technology's unintended consequences and about what people in education should consider as they set up big data systems if they do. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Fusion Conference. Education and nonprofit leaders, join us in October to discuss personalized learning for the whole learner, how learning sciences, Social-emotional learning and technology can advance personalized learning in schools and districts. Visit fusion.edsurge.com to register. I'm talking today with Virginia Eubanks, an associate professor of political science at SUNY Albany and author of the book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, your, your book presents a, a kind of divided world. Um, when it comes to the experience of tech today, um, for for well-off people, it feels you know it's a time of convenience and, and, and ease in some cases, thanks to social media and algorithms that that kind of um, do do a lot of things these days, kind of automatically. But for people who are poor or disadvantaged, some of those same digital systems can can look very different, as you describe in your book. Can you can you give one example of someone experiencing? Um, what you call the the digital poorhouse? Sure. I think one of the things that's different about uh, automating inequality from some of the other work out there about um, technology, particularly around technology and social justice, um, is that I do two things. Um, one is that I start with like a deep history of poverty policy so, so that we understand the context in which these tools, from which these tools emerge, right? Like the soil that these flowers grow out of. Um, but the other thing that's really important um, about the book, I think, is though I did over 100 interviews and I talked to data scientists and designers and administrators and frontline caseworkers and activists and journalists and all sorts of folks, um, in each of the three stories that I tell in the book, I tell I start from the point of view of poor and working families who are the targets of the technologies that um, I'm talking about. So too often, I think when we talk about technology and how it affects us, how it affects our culture and our politics, 
um, we tend to talk about it sort of um, abstractly, uh, as if it affects everybody the same way, um, as if most of the um, impacts are going to happen sometime in the future. And it's something that's always been really frustrating for me about our technology conversations is because I've done um, 15 years of economic justice and welfare rights work, uh, I know that in the communities that I organize and work, um, that these impacts are being felt right now in very material ways by the families who are the targets of these tools. And so it was really important for me um, to start there. It didn't end there, but I started there. And and that's part of the way that I frame the book is talking about, um, there's a young mom on public assistance who I worked with many years ago um, when I was doing mostly community technology center work. And she and I had worked on designing um, a tech lab in a residential YWCA in my hometown of Troy, New York together. And one day we were just sort of sitting around in the lab and shooting the breeze about technology. And I asked about her um, EBT card, which is the electronic benefits transfer card. That's the sort of debit-like card that you get public assistance benefits on. And I said, she goes by a pseudonym in uh, in the book, Dorothy Allen. So I, I was saying, you know, Dorothy, people tell me this is more convenient, that there's less stigma than like pulling out actual paper food stamps. You know, what do you think? And she said, oh, you know, all of that's true. Um, but at the same time, my caseworker uses the electronic records of my EBT card to um, basically track all of my purchases and hence all of my movements. And I must have had this really sort of naively shocked look on my face because she pretty much just kind of pointed and laughed at me for a couple of minutes. Um, and then she got uh, sort of quieter and more reflective. And she said, oh, you know what, Virginia, so you all, meaning professional middle class people, um, you all should pay attention to what's happening to us because they're coming for you next. And that was 18 years ago. Um, and I think was both a very generous insight, right? She like showed that she deeply cared about other people beside herself. Um, but also it was just really incisive, really insightful, and I think really prescient. And so every time I, I engage in doing this work, and I've been writing about technology and social justice for you know 20 years now, um, anytime I engage in one of these projects and one of these um, pieces of writing, I always have Dorothy's voice in the back of my head that's like, you know, start with the people who are most directly affected. They know the most about what's actually happening. Um, and they also are most invested in creating smart solutions. So that's very much a, a place where my own privilege was being checked by the people I was working with um, who said, you know, the way you're thinking about this, the way you're framing this doesn't really capture our experience. And so I feel really lucky, really grateful to have had those kinds of interactions that have helped steer me to the sort of writing that I do today. In a, in a quick elevator pitch, I wonder if you could describe for folks who read the book, the three case studies that you explore in depth. Um, sure. Yeah, so the overall sort of idea of the book is that these sort of new data-driven digital technologies that we're starting to uh, incorporate into our social assistance systems, they have great potential, right? They can lower barriers, um, to they can integrate programs, they can speed results. Um, but because of the ways we understand poverty in the United States and because of our really incredibly punitive um, social assistance system and sort of moralistic social assistance system, what we're actually doing is building a digital poorhouse, which is this sort of invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, statistical models across a really wide range of social assistance programs. So the three I talk about in the book 
The first one is an attempt to automate and privatize all of the eligibility processes for the welfare system in the state of Indiana in 2006. The second system that I write about in the book is called the Coordinated Entry System. And that's something that's in wide use across the country and uh, honestly around the world. But I write about it specifically in Los Angeles County, which has one of the um, uh, highest rates of homelessness and the highest rate of completely unsheltered homelessness in the country. So there's 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County and 75% of them are totally unsheltered. Hmm. So the system I talk about in LA is um, what proponents call the match.com of homeless services. And the idea is to basically rank all the unhoused people in Los Angeles County in terms of their vulnerability to some of the worst outcomes of homelessness, death, mental illness, um, uh, 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 and you know, disastrous health effects um, to the most appropriate available housing resource, whether that's permanent supportive housing or the sort of more time-limited resources of rapid rehousing. Mm. Um, so that's the second case. And the third case that I talk about in the book is about the what's called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, um, which is a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict uh, which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County, which is the county um, where Pittsburgh is in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Can you give a specific example, but maybe most surprising to people that may not be aware of of how these systems can can kind of cause stress or harm for, for people. Is there one example that you think that might illustrate that in either of the yeah, cases? Sure. Let me, let me actually, let me compare two, cause that'll sort of make that point uh, a little clearer. So sure. on, on one hand, we have the Indiana case. So in Indiana, the then governor, Mitch Daniels, um, signed in 2006, a 1.34 billion with a B billion dollar contract with a coalition of high tech companies that included IBM and ACS. Mm -hmm. um, to automate all of their welfare eligibility processes. And what that meant in practice was moving about 1,500 public um, frontline caseworkers from their local county offices into these regionalized and privatized call centers. What that, what that looked like on the ground um, was that these caseworkers were no longer responsive to a docket of families, to a group of families, a caseload. Um, but instead, in the new call centers, they responded to a, a queue of tasks that dropped into their new workflow management system. What that meant from the caseworker's point of view is it was very hard to stay attentive to a case from beginning to end. In fact, it was impossible for them because they just had to answer whichever call came through the system next. And from the point of view of applicants, if something went wrong with their application, it was really hard to get to the bottom of what had gone on. So it really limited the accountability the state had for the decisions it was making. Hmm. So what happened is about a million applications were denied in the first three years of this experiment. That was a 54% increase from the three years before the experiment. And most everybody was denied for this sort of catch-all reason, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And what that meant in reality was just that a mistake had been made somewhere. You know, either the applicant had forgotten to sign, you know, page 36 of a 50-page application, or the call center worker had given them incorrect information about what they needed to provide, 
or they had like photocopied their driver's license and faxed it to the document processing center where it was scanned. And after all of those transformations, it just turned into like a black box that was totally unreadable. Any one of those things could get you denied for failure to cooperate. So what it did really was move accountability and shift the burden of proving eligibility from the state and local caseworkers onto the shoulders of some of the most vulnerable people in Indiana. And it had really, really incredibly painful and awful impacts on, on many people there. So I tell the story of Omega Young, who was um, a middle-aged African-American woman who lived in Evansville, Indiana, um, who was denied Medicaid when she missed um, a phone appointment with the call center for to recertify because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer, for example. Mm. So that's one kind of story that I tell in the book. Really, it's not the intentions that I'm interested in. It's the impacts I'm interested in. So in comparison, in a case like Los Angeles, um, there's some very smart, very sharp, very committed people working to create this coordinated entry system. And it responds to a real problem, which is there's 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County, and there's not enough resources um, currently to um, supply them all with the kinds of things that they need to stay safe and healthy. Um, so the intention here is to try to um, do triage, is to try to get the people most at risk for bad outcomes into uh, or connected to a resource as quickly as possible. The problem, or among the problems, so the system works pretty well, um, for a small number of people. So I talked to a woman named Monique Tolley who said the system's a gift from God. It's the best Christmas present she ever um, received because it got her housing. Um, and that's amazing. It's really important. And the system has managed to connect about 9,000 people with some kind of housing resource. That doesn't mean housing, but um, some kind of housing resource. Um, but for the 30,000 people who have gone through the process of being surveyed for the coordinated entry system and haven't gotten any resources in return, they have a little bit more complicated a relationship to the system. And part of that comes out of um, how deeply invasive the instrument they use to survey people is. So it's a survey called the VISPDAT, which is a terrible acronym for the Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. And the VI SPDAT asks questions like, um, are you having unprotected sex? Are you currently trading sex for drugs? Um, do the police have a warrant out on you? Um, where hmm. can you be found at different times of the day? Uh, can we take your picture? Um, and so it asks people to release a lot of information that makes them feel very vulnerable. That isn't necessarily bad information to collect if you're trying to figure out who is most vulnerable, but um, if that information is released, um, can actually really cause great harm to people. And so one of the things I found in my reporting is that under the current federal data standards, not all of that information on the survey but um, information that is uh, stored in the database, uh, which is called the um, HMIS, the Homeless Management Information um, System, um, information that's stored in an HMIS is actually available to law enforcement with no warrant process at all, just based on an oral request, which mm. means like a line officer can walk into a social service um, office and ask for information out of HMIS 
The social service worker is not, this is important to understand, not required to give it to them, but they are allowed to give it to them, right? So a system that has good intentions and is actually quite thoughtfully built becomes something that can create bad outcomes for unhoused people because we have a system that criminalizes homelessness, right? In, in no other um uh, in no under no other conditions does it make sense to give police officers access to to um, homeless service data, except for in a context where you're criminalizing homelessness. Hmm. Um, and so the folks who I spoke to who have been surveyed in the system, folks like Gary Boatwright, um, have told me that they felt like they were being asked to incriminate themselves in exchange for a slightly higher lottery number for housing. Um, and in a context where, you know, consent is, I mean, at best squishy, right? It's hard to say that people are fully consenting to be part of this survey if it is the primary way to access housing resources in the county. Mm-hmm. In the context where consent is um, not entirely freely given, it can feel really coercive and really dangerous. Now, Obviously, we focus on education and technology here at EdSurge. Um, I know that you don't focus on any educational case studies in your in your book, but are there ways in which these same trends um, could be playing out or could play out in the future in education? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I do know a bit about, and this is basically because ed tech people keep bringing it up every time I talk about the book, which I really appreciate. I'm learning so much from these conversations about the book, is that there is um, what seems like a really best case scenario that's happened recently at Georgia State. Now, you might know a little bit more about this than me, so please feel free to correct me if I if I go astray. <laughs> We've covered but, this a little bit, but yeah. Okay, so my understanding is several years ago, um, Georgia State got a new president, um, and Georgia State, which is a historically um, black university, um, had in the past faced some real struggles with retaining um, and graduating students on time. So uh, this new president came in um, sort of talking a lot about using predictive analytics to identify students who might be struggling earlier and to give them better advising support so that they would stay on track and graduate on on time. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people have brought this case up to me like, oh, but look at this. Um, And so it happened enough that I actually did some some research on it. Um, And my understanding at least is that we're very much burying the lead in the story. So this gets written about a success, uh, gets written about as a success of predictive analytics Mm -hmm. story. When in fact, one of the things that's really profound about this case is at the same time that they were using predictive analytics or beginning to use predictive analytics, they went from doing a thousand advising appointments per year to doing 52,000 advising appointments per year. They, they hired 43 new advisors. Mm. So one of the things that's really interesting about this is that that's not the story we hear. Like that to me, that the lead in that story is adequate resources solve real problem, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, and of course, predictive analytics, I'm sure played a part in that and in, in helping to distribute the vastly expanded resources that they had um, at their disposal. Um, but it's so interesting to me that it gets written a, about as a success of predictive analytics rather than as a success of really committing the resources that are needed to solve the deep problems of social inequality that we have. Hmm. So to you, that's, and, and the, I guess the danger of telling it 
the way the algorithmic focus is that it suggests that all you need to do is build the tool or the, the instead of hire all the, the extra 40 counselors. Exactly. Wouldn't that be nice, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could just build these tools that solve like our deepest social crises? Um, well, that is the hope by a lot of people. <laughs> that is the hope. I am, I, I am um, sorry to, to, to disappoint that, that hope. Um, but I find that if we don't tackle the deep social issues at root of the, uh, of these problems that we reproduce them through our tools and we don't just reproduce them now that we're looking at these densely networked, very fast tools that scale so quickly, we also run the risk of vastly amplifying those problems. So let me give you one example. One of the things, so all the three cases I talk about are quite different, but one of the things that was common to all three of them is that administrators and designers and data scientists all describe them to me as regrettable but necessary tools of triage, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that we don't have enough um, and that we have to make really difficult decisions around which people will um, get access to their basic human needs, whether that's shelter or food or medical care. And what I try to remind people in the book is that idea to that I, that idea to triage is already a political choice, right? Mm. In many places in the world, the kinds of conditions I describe in the book, right? A family losing their child because they can't afford a medication prescription uh, to fill a medication prescription or folks who spend 10 years living in tents on the sidewalk. Um, those things would be seen as human rights violations. And increasingly, I'm afraid that we see them in the United States as systems engineering problems. And we're not going to solve these problems just by getting information and data to the place it needs to go more quickly. That certainly can help. Um, but that's a terrible model for politics. It's a terrible model for how we actually interact with each other in the real world, which has everything to do with conflicting values and, um, you know, deep uh, uh, entrenched interests, um, mis deep misunderstandings of things like poverty, right? Like, so we tell this story in the United States that poverty is something that only happens to a tiny percentage of probably pathological people when the reality is 51% of us will be below the poverty line at some point in our adult lives. At some point between the ages of 20 and 64, 51% um, of us will be below the poverty line. That's a majority issue. That's not an issue that you address by doing better moral diagnosis um, and triaging who has access to their um, basic human rights. That's a problem that you solve by building universal floors under everyone. So you mentioned in the book, um, you know, it's interesting to the degree you talk about this as a social and, and an almost narrative problem as much as, as a technical problem. And you mentioned something that you refer to as almost like a Hippocratic oath you're proposing for data scientists and, and engineers and administrators to deal with these kinds of issues. And I think you call it the oath of non-harm for an age yep. of big data. Um, I, I, don't, I know that there's a whole list here we could, we could describe um, in, in text better than audio, but, but what, is the, um, you know, what, what is the basic reason for, for having such an oath? Or, or, yeah. For me, the Hippocratic Oath boils down to two really basic gut check questions. The first one is, does the tool increase 
the dignity and the self-determination of poor and working people. Um, and the second is, if the tool was aimed at anyone but poor and working people, would it be tolerated? And those seem like basic democracy questions to me. We shouldn't be building tools aimed at poor and working people that we would not tolerate being used on anyone else. Um, and so those, for me, are the questions that if you can't answer yes, that you just shouldn't do it at all, that you're on the wrong side of history. I guess, for me, this the, the challenging part of the book is really the deep-seated nature of, of the issues you raise. And I wonder you know, how do we even, how do you propose even getting to re, re kind of re getting people to rethink how they think about poverty or providing, um, you know, assistance through government programs, which could be any of the things we've talked about, whether it's education benefit or a, um, a, a food assistance. Yeah. So, um, two things. One is you've, uh, you've found my secret. Um, my, my, one of my most deep seated secrets, which I'm just going to share, um, (laughs) on your podcast, which is I actually write about technology to force people to think about poverty. Um, and so it's kind of a fascinating backdoor, um, into these stories that folks, um, maybe wouldn't pick up off the shelf and read because they don't want to deal with the realities of economic and racial inequality in the United States, right? So it's a way to really invite people into the conversation through a different door. Um, and that uh, has been really exciting for me. Um, and I, I believe it's, it's worked to a certain, um, to a certain degree. Um, but the second thing I want to say um, is, ironically, uh, the cure for Uh, bad data may be telling better stories, right? Hmm. Data is deeply shaped by the stories we tell ourselves about how the world works because it affects how we collect things, who we collect things on, and how we organize the data once we have it, right? And Hmm. those are all things that go into the deep social programming of these tools. Um, And I deeply believe that telling better stories, our own stories, about our struggles with uh, economic precarity, um, and again, that this is a majority issue, um, can really shift how we think about these social programs and then how we think about the technologies that we build to serve these social programs. So part of my goal is to provide the space for people to feel their own stories confirmed and heard, um, and also to challenge people who haven't had direct um, experience with the kinds of systems I describe in the book to challenge them a little bit to understand what it feels like to be inside these systems and to recognize the families I talk about as what they are, which is incredibly resourceful, resilient um, experts in their own experience. Um, And so that's where we need to start all of this work is with the kinds of families I talk about in automating inequality. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for the great conversation. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. As regular listeners know, we, we've been doing these interviews for a while. So, so there's a big back catalog um, you can find on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. I particularly recommend last week's look at equity in education with Caroline Hill. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you can, take a minute to give us a rating since that'll help others find the show. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.